Heavenly Father, we pray today that you would take us to that place where our trust is without borders, that there's no more confining it, there's no more overwhelming it, but our trust and our confidence in you and our relationship with you is such that we can rise above whatever the waves are. And Lord, I pray that you would do what you've promised to do in your word today, that you would put your words in us and that they would stay there, that they would go so deep, not because of the word spoken by the one who teaches, but because of the word spoken by you those many years ago, but that are still being spoken by you into our hearts today. I pray that that would be true, that you would send it, take us to that land, that place where we rise above the waters and our faith, our trust in you has no boundaries and no borders. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for being here and you may be seated. <clears throat> um, I've been wanting to do this for a while. I've been trying to think of a way to do it, so I'm going to do it now because I think it fits into what we're doing in this series and where we're going today. Uh, I love to share with those of you who I love uh, stuff that has really, you know, impacted me spiritually and helped me spiritually. And ever since last year when we did the, did the uh, Love This Book series where we read through uh, the whole Bible, remember that? We were reading through the Bible together. Uh, ever since then, uh, I have found, I've been reading this uh, another through the Bible uh, Bible app, and it goes through the entire Bible. Uh, you read a, a psalm or a proverb, and then you read a New Testament passage and Old Testament passages. And this one's been particularly helpful to me, and I wanted to share it with you. Uh, and it's this. It's Bible in one year. Those of you who are uh, version aficionados on that app, maybe you've seen this before. And it, the thing about this that makes it um, powerful to me is... Um, something that I, I have to, first of all, tell you a true confession on. I mean, if, if you can't confess to your church, who can you confess to, okay? So keep this to yourself. Don't spread this around. But here's the thing. I confess to you that I have a really hard time finding a devotional book that I connect with, okay? And I'm not dissing your devotional books. I'm just saying with my theologically fevered brain. Sometimes I'm just a little overly critical maybe, and, 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 and you know, some of those devotional books that you buy on the self-help, I mean on the Bible section, uh, you know, they're just too syrupy and kind of shallow, right? This particular app is from Nikki and Pippa Gumbel, who are the pastors at uh, Holy Trinity Church in London. And if you don't know about Holy Trinity, they're the place that some of the music we sing, I think Tim Hughes uh, might still be their worship leader. Tim Hughes writes some songs that we sing. Uh, and also, if you've ever experienced Alpha, it comes from Holy Trinity Church. Alpha was a worldwide phenomenon of discipleship program for new believers. And it comes from there. But in this, in this app, in this uh, Bible reading plan, there's a devotional at the beginning that isn't, you know, high and, you know, theological, but it brings it right, the Bible right into life for me and does it in a, in a strong way and not, you know, knock my socks off way every day, but there's a way of, hmm, you know, I need to think about that. And as I read the scripture then for that day, it's helpful. So I wanted to share that with you. In fact, this last Thursday, I had a, an experience where I was reading that devotion, and honest truth is I don't read the sermon after. I just read the first three paragraphs. So I want to I share with you the first three paragraphs of this because I think it takes us where we're going in this Onward series. Here it is. 
And this is a quote from a book. 10,000 prostitutes plying their trade in the streets of London whispered, or, or sorry, widespread heavy drinking, gambling, immor immorality. London life was licentious and decadent. Those are the good old days. This is how William Hague, the former leader of the British Conservative Party and the current foreign secretary, this was written a few years ago, Hague is not the foreign secretary anymore, describes the 18th century London in his biography of William Wilberforce. Remember Wilberforce? He's the one that took down the dark, dark evil of the slave trade in the British Empire. Almost single-handedly, but I mean, he was the one God says, you do it, and he stepped out there, he took a lot of abuse for it, but in the end, it won. Anglican congregations had declined sharply. Part of the English church had virtually descended into paganism 250 years ago. 250 years ago, they were worshiping things other than God. They were living in idolatry. Yet the nation was changed. The preaching of John Wesley and George Whitfield, who came after that, began to take effect, and thousands of people responded to their message and encountered Jesus. Robert Rakes started his first Sunday school in 1780. Do you know it started all the way back then, children's ministry? Look at this. The growth from this one idea touched 300,000 unchurched children within five years. And they didn't even have the internet. By 1910, there were 5,668,760 children in Sunday school. And God's, God raised up Wilberforce, another guy named Shaftesbury, and, and others like Robert Rakes. Not only were individual hearts changed, but the nation was also transformed. As we look at our world today, we see that it is changing faster than ever before. In the last 25 years, there has been massive change politically, economically, technologically, and I would say morally. Massive change is taking place in many countries around the world. How can the spiritual climate of a nation be changed? The reason I read that for you is to say... It's happened before, where the culture of the country and the, as a country in the Western world has been falling, falling, falling into decadence and all kinds of crazy stuff that sometimes can be so overwhelming, and yet God reached in and he changed it and redirected it toward himself. It's happened before. And the reason I bring that up is because I know we come in here overwhelmed sometimes when we look at the culture, we look at the world, and I know we, we talk about this all the time, but I really do think you need some juice when you come in here. You need some lifting up and encouraging. And, 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 and that's, I, I think what we need to understand is God's not gone anywhere, that he's still at work. In fact, what's interesting to me as we come to John chapter 15 today, Jesus has just at the end of chapter 14 told his disciples, hey, come on, let's leave the upper room, let's start walking. So they start walking across the old city of Jerusalem, down through the Kidron Valley, down to the base of Mount, uh, 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 the Mount of Olives, and that's where Gethsemane is. And as they're walking along, Jesus isn't silent. He's teaching, 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 teaching. But here's the crazy thing. As Jesus is teaching these disciples who are sure the other shoe is about to drop, they don't, they're probably remembering when Jesus says, I'm going to die, and they can't believe that. That's just too much for them to factor, but things are getting bad. They've noticed that the elites of Jerusalem, the elitists, you know, the people, the, the rulers and the, the religious types, they've all begun to turn against Jesus. They have outrage and hate against Jesus. They're starting to look at Jesus' followers and saying, you're the problem. And they're, they're factoring all this in this night as they're walking across over to the Garden of Gethsemane. And they can tell that something crazy is about to happen, and they're not sure they can handle it. And Jesus is talking with them, but he doesn't do what we would think you would do in a situation like that. He doesn't talk about the big bad world out there so much. 
he talks far, far more about his relationship with them. He talks far, far more about what uh, a mentor and friend of mine, James Houston, wrote a book titled The Transforming Friendship. He's saying, he's talking about how his friendship with us transforms us so that we do rise above the waves, so we can live in in, in a life that is trusting in God to the point that we don't have borders, that's not crimping our trust, it's not crimping our faith. That kind of faith. He's saying, you stay with me, because we focus on the transforming friendship. We like the friendship part. We get that, and Jesus says, don't forget the transforming part, because that's what makes the whole thing work. And that's what I want to see happen. And then you say, well, is he talking about transforming the world? And I think he is. He's just not talking about it from the place that we usually think about it, or look at it, or view it. He's starting on the left-hand side of this statement right here. How does God change a nation, a country, the world, a life? He starts on the left-hand side. with He changes it one relationship, one church, one community, one city, then one nation at a time. That's how it is. It's no small thing for a life to be changed and transformed by God because that's the beginning of changing everything or as Jesus says in the book of Revelation, making everything new. That's what Jesus is teaching his disciples just before he goes into the big bad world and is killed in the most heinous way ever devised by man. Isn't that interesting? So if you got your Bible, look at Jesus, what Jesus says about this transforming friendship. Turn to John chapter 15. And as you're going there, let me remind you that we talked about the first 11 verses of this uh, last January, in the, in the beginning of, of January, first Sunday of January, I think, where we talked about abiding and remaining in Jesus and the spiritual life and all that kind of stuff. Remember we did that? Well, that's sort of the setup to what he's about to say. Now he's going to apply what that means. In fact, we're going to reach back into verse 7 just to kind of get our grips and get our, our uh, um, bearings on where he's going with this. Look at what he says in verse 7 in verse 8. He says, if you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it'll be done for you. We really like that part. This is my Father's glory that you bear much fruit showing yourselves to be my disciples. There's a famous uh, Bible scholar from Australia. His name was uh, Leon Morris. And he says at this point that Jesus is now turning from uh, uh, talking about fruit bearing to prayer. And that he's moving from what's going to happen to the relationship that's going to make it happen. That's what Jesus is doing here. He's, he, in, in, in this prayer, he says, you know, if, if, if you remain in me and, and my words remain in you, those are the two R's, you know, my words remain in you and you remain in me, then what? ask whatever, then what? ask whatever you want, and it will be done for you. And you know, last week we talked about the fact that you can't faith God into anything, right? And if you think about that, that's sort of like the Captain Obvious Bible study method right there. Because if Jesus is God, of course he can do whatever he wants. Of course he can say it. Of course he can, he can answer or not answer prayers. If he's got something bigger going on in mind, Right? I mean, it's, it only makes sense if he's God, uh, and it's, it's sort of like my favorite J. Vernon McGee quote. You've heard me say it a bazillion times, maybe, but I still like to say it. You know, God does things his way in his universe. You may have a better way, but you do not have a universe, right? 
That's kind of what Jesus is, look, you just stick with me. I've got a bigger understanding. I've got higher plans. In other words, Jesus isn't pushing us off. He's drawing us close. When he's going to start changing the world, it doesn't start out there. It starts in here and in here in the body of Christ. That's where it starts. So he's saying, look, guys, you and ladies, you know, Peter, James, John, Nate, Bart, Thaddeus, Mary and Martha, make sure you understand this. What I'm starting starts inside of you and in this church. You're you're already growing in me. You're already being transformed because you're already in me. And I have put my words in you. Keep them there. Keep my words in you and you stay in me and you are not going to believe what happens. So he pulls us up close. And then he says, this is to my Father's glory, which you begin to look at that and you say, well, what does the this refer to? The this refers to remaining in him and his words remain in us and then ask whatever you wish and it'll be done for you. Why? Because you've got God's view. You've got God's perspective. You've got God's uh, 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 reality. And, you know, I, I remember thinking about this in terms of when I was uh, in a prayer meetings when I was a younger person, like a real younger person, like a little kid. For whatever reason, my parents had the re- wisdom, and I think it probably was wisdom because it was a good church, but they would bring me to Wednesday night prayer meeting, and I would have to sit in there with the adults, which I can tell you how many board slats there are on the ceiling of my old church, okay? Because honestly, I just kind of zoned out. And I remember at one point, I think some of it rubbed off by osmosis, so that was good that I was there, but I remember one point thinking, okay, they just prayed for Aunt Lucy's ingrown toenail in Iowa. What's that got to do with us? Let's say God did that. What different, you know, and that, I'm kind of, that's where the whole cynical thing started. But, but you know, that's, <laughs> that's kind of what we do. And I'm not saying don't pray for her ingrown toenail because that hurts. But if that's all we're praying for, what medical science can take care of, that's not really taking God very seriously. I mean, we need to pray bigger prayers than that if we're really going to experience the transformation of the friendship with Jesus, right? I mean, you got to pray for things, and we got to ask God for things that only God can do. That's why he does want us to pray for the, the nation to be changed. But he doesn't want us to forget that it starts on the other end of the sentence. It starts with the one life, your life and my life and the life of your family, and then so forth and so on. And the Father's glorified when that fruit is born in the result of that process. And here, here one more confession. I might as well do it. We're doing it all kinds. The reason I wanted to get to these, these two verses is because after Easter, we're going to do something that we've been preparing for for about three or four years. Because you see, the last three or four years, we have focused, 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 focused on challenging biblical illiteracy. Not just in us, but in our world and our culture. So we want to be deep in the Bible. We want, to be, we want to be reading it. We want to be in it all the time. We've invited you to soak yourself in the Bible, okay? And, and, and now that we've done that, that his words are remaining in us, and we're going to keep that up, now that that's happening, we're going to do what he says next. We're going to start asking for the big stuff. So after Easter, we're doing a series of what is it that we're asking God to do that only he can do in our church and in our family, church family. What is it that he can, only he can do? We're going to pray big. So I invite you to start thinking about that, start praying about that. And if you haven't been reading through the Bible, if you haven't been in the Bible, you've got four weeks to get in the hot tub. 
and then we're going to go for it, okay? We're going to talk about that, but that's, this is exactly the process he asks us to do. Don't get freaked out by the world. Don't get overwhelmed by it, but remain in me, let my words remain in you, and then ask, and watch what I do. In fact, I think, you know, with all that was going through the disciples' minds as they're walking along, my sense is, as Jesus looks at them, and he sees it in their eyes, it's kind of that look of, why would I do that? Kind of, you know, look, right? And so he says, does something that is so gentle and yet so powerful it, 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 it had to have touched them at their heart, even with all that was swirling around them. And I'm sure these words came back to them after the fact of the crucifixion. Look at verse 9. It says, As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. That's four times in two verses, the word love and loved. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be finished or complete. So he goes personal. He says, this isn't just theology. This isn't just some mental idea. This is, this is going to the heart here. This is going to the very heart of what it means to be alive and what it means to be in you because God has designed you and me for relationships. And you see, what I think Jesus is challenging here is something that has become a, a, a serious problem for us. Because when he says, I love you, or if I say I love you or you say you love me, what do we tend to do as human beings? We tend to pull out our definition of love, right? We've polished it up. We've made it all nice. We know exactly what love means if you really love me. If you love me, you'll do this. If you love me, you'll give that. If you love me, you'll take me to Hawaii, which is my personal favorite. Right that? You know? We do. And we kind of do the same thing with Jesus. Okay, Jesus, if you love me, you'll do this. You know, you'll give me that, you'll do that. You know, don't we do that? That's the human nature. And so Jesus has to put a qualifier, not a condition, but he has to explain that that really isn't love because that, that, that puts more borders around you, not take, you know, it doesn't bring you trust that's beyond the borders. So here's what you got to do. You got to love like I have loved you. I've demonstrated it to you now. I've put that love in you. Now go out and do it for others. Do it in other people. I mean, think about this. Let's kind of circle back. Circle back to where the disciples are at this moment, and Jesus has just said, I love you, and my joy is in you, and you'll be complete. And they're thinking on all this, and it's swirling around, and they're about ready to walk smack into the gates of lost world, and it's just, ah, oh, you know, what in the world's going on here? And Jesus says, I love you, and I want my joy in you. And then, you know, there had to be sort of this question cloud hanging over their head. Like, what's love got to do with that? What's joy got to do with that, Jesus? And here's where I think we need to have an adjustment of our thinking, too. You see, and I want to be careful here, whenever someone comes to you or writes a book and says that they always get a yes from God, all the time, bestsellers list, that's hocus pocus. That's not true. That's not real. It's magic. It's prosperity gospel preaching. That's what it is. And even people that, you know, write the books and we say, oh, man, I want those miracles. Tell me how you did that. Jesus is like, meh, I can do that anytime. 
That doesn't impress me. What impresses me is the person who's walked through the valleys, walked through the adversity, walked through lost world, and yeah, I've kept them above the waves, but they've gone through it and come back the other, out this other side, and they still have confidence and trust in me. That's the impressive part. And when you think about it, isn't that true for you and me? I mean, when, those are the people that it's like mind-boggling. How did you do that? Well, it really wasn't me doing it. It was Jesus doing it. Let me explain it. You know, it's that transforming friendship that Jesus is trying to go after right here. That's the reality. And we know that's the truth because he comes back to his command that he said like five times already in the upper room in verse 12. Look at this. He says, my command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, than they lay down their lives for their friends. Now, Jesus is obviously in this laying down his life for friends. He's referring to the cross, but he's referring to something he's asking us to do, not necessarily going to the cross. He's not asking us to go out in the street and run in front of cars for each other. He's talking about something different. He's talking about something more internal, more spiritual that he's asking us to do. And it has something to do with one of the greatest epidemics of our time. This cultural moment where we live, I don't know if you've heard about this. They've been talking about it on the cover of the New York Times and the Washington Post since fall. Uh, Psychology Today just came out with a big major article on a study that was done of 20,000 uh, people in America 18 years of age and older. And these people, you know, that's a really big sampling. These people were asked about how they felt about loneliness. Do they feel alienated from people? And what they found out is there's an epidemic of alienation and loneliness in America. It's fact, the, the answers are double or triple what they were just two decades ago. Listen to this. This is what, what they found that was so staggering. They found that 40% of people in this survey said they feel alone. 41%, almost half the people in the United States, say that they feel they're left out. 27% say they're not understood. 43% say their relations aren't meaningful. 43% say they're isolated. That's, epi that's epidemic stuff. Generation Z, the one that comes before, uh, you know, that comes after uh, the millennials, you millennials, born after 95, they're shaping up, according to this, to the, be the most lonely generation in the history of the world. And you th immediately, you know, my... Uh, attitude towards social media comes into play. But they say, you know, that's not it. That's not a predictor whether or not somebody's in social media. It, it affects it, they sure, but what they said is, is the problem is meaningful human connectedness. That's what's not happening in our country, in our world today. And you look at that and you go, wow, that, that really stinks and that's horrible, but what if, what if that's meant to sort of drive us into something else? What if it's meant to make us dream about, what if we really lived the love for one another that Jesus is talking about here? What about that? What if that, that happened in your life and then your family and your church and then churches got a hold of it and, and then communities got touched by it and then cities got touched? What about that? What if that was our cause, our hope? Like Wilberforce had the hope and the cause of calling of God to speak up against the evil of slavery and the slave trade? What if our calling was to speak up against the evil of loneliness and alienation and separateness 
and love one another the way Jesus is talking about. What if that happened? What if we hit critical mass? That's how Jesus says the world can change. And, and decades later, after hearing this, when these guys start writing uh, the New Testament, they, go, they dig around in the Greek language, which has several, language, or several words for love. It's not like a, you know, uh, you know uh, in, in English where uh, the word love means, you know, the love boat. And then it means, you know, I love my dog. And it means I, I love my mother-in-law. And it means, I, you know, I love you. It doesn't, they have different words for different things, for different kind of aspects of love. And what these guys dig around and they find is a word for love that isn't used by the normal writers of their time, the average secular writers or the, the, the other uh, pagan writers. They, they use a word that hasn't been used for a long, long time since the last several centuries. They pull it out. You've probably heard it. I heard about it when I was in uh, junior high and we were on the end of the hippie generation and it was, you know, the season of love. Well, what Christians did is they came up with this Greek word that said, yeah, we're all about love too, but it's this. It's not that. It's the word agape. Sounds like Spanish, but it's not. It's Greek. Yeah, agape is the selfless kind of love. It's the... Um, it's the loyal kind of love. It's the love that's willing to sacrifice. It's the same kind of love that says you really know you love when you lay down your life for your friends. And he doesn't mean, that, you know, we only got one life to lay down physically. He's not saying go out and, you know, do that for somebody right now. He's saying, how about sacrificing yourself, your life, what you want for this moment for that person? That's the kind of love. How about being so loyal to them that you're willing to take yourself out of the equation and care only for them? That's the kind of love he's talking about that transforms and changes the world. And, and the cool thing here is that is exactly what could happen in this generation that is so lost in its loneliness. Imagine that. That's what he's saying can, it's possible to transform the outrage and the distance and the alienation. And there, there's some reasons for the alienation. I know people push the eject button on God, push the eject button on church, push the eject button on, 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 on prayer and, and, and talking to God and try to shove them out of their life. And Jesus is saying, before you do all that, before you, you know, push, push the, uh, you know, push people away button, before you push, put, you know, push the uh, uh, God uh, away button, before you push any buttons, just remember that when I say I'm going away, I'm not really going away in the way you think. It's just a metaphor for you to have a new category of what it means to be in friendship with me. And I'm actually going to be closer to you because I'm going to be inside you. I'm going to be closer to you than I am in physical form. And so before you do that, just remember that I'm not going anywhere. And, and what if that would happen? Because here's the thing. When people push that eject button or they push the, you know, uh, alcohol button or, or whatever it is that, you know, is the latest thing that's going to make me feel better, when they, when they do that and they walk away from God, it just doesn't get any better. It gets worse, doesn't it? I mean, maybe you're one of those people that's, that's recently come back, or maybe you were, you were in, the, in the desert of Lost World for a while, and you came back. I mean, and I'm not making fun of people that do this. Please understand me when I talk about all these buttons. We built this church for people like you, if you're one of those people. And I can tell you what, 
I ask people over the, de- the years of being a pastor of this church, and the people that have come back and found God hasn't gone anywhere. Jesus hasn't gone anywhere. They always, always say to me, I say, what was it like out there? And they go, boy, did it ever get more complicated. Boy, did it, it was a mess. Having the whole world on your shoulders, that's a terrible way to live. You being the one, uh, uh, they always tell me that. And Jesus said, I don't want you to go there because I want to transform you in such a way that you can rise above all that, that you don't have limits, that you don't have boundaries around your relationship with me or or around, you know, your life. And that's what I'm trying to lift you out of. And so he begins to summarize all of this. And he begins to describe the, the transforming friendship and what, how it transforms us and what he wants to do in these last few verses. Look at verse 14. He says, you are my friends if you do what I command. No, I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends. For everything that I have learned from my father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you. Did you know that? before you even cared. And Jesus appointed you, or, and, and, and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last, so that whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give you. This is my command to love each other. Jesus thinks of you as a friend if, he's your, if you're his follower. Do you think of him that way? Here's an interesting thing. Jesus doesn't invite anybody on mission with him who's not his friend. If you're a follower of his, you're his friend. And he's going to transform you and give you what you need to be on that mission. That's why he does something very interesting in this passage. Those first two verses we read, when he starts this little vignette, in verses 7 and 8, he says two things, right? He says, remain in me and let my words remain in you. And then he says, love one another, right? In verses 16 and 17, he does the same thing. Remain in me. And let my love remain in you. Love one another, right? And and so he wants us apparently to get that because those two things go together. And in the process, he's tackling the world's greatest problem. It apparently was the world's greatest problem then, but it's really a problem now. And here's the thing. We don't, we being generic, we, I'm sure you don't think this, but our generation, our culture thinks that we're the first ones to discover the answer to how society is really supposed to work. Everybody else is dumber than we are. We're smarter. We figured it out. The only problem is if you look at history, every single uh, disintegrating culture grabs onto this at some point. And by the way, if you were in the men's group this morning and you heard Larry Gadbosch speak, he and I didn't talk because he started his whole talk with this. And I didn't rip him off and he didn't rip me off. We just came to this independently. But here's the greatest problem of our time. It's, it's the result of postmodern, post-Christian uh, thinking. And remember, a few, few weeks ago, we talked about the ACM, the autonomous choice morality. That's how it affects, but it's the autonomous thing that we're talking about. And then we said it, it sort of morphed into identity uh, morality, which is, again, a part of the autonomy thing, that every person has a right to their own thing. Everybody gets to make their own choices, uh, regardless of what God says about it or anybody else says about it. only problem with that is what you have, what you result is, is if, if we are all just a bunch of autonomous selves, 
If we're just all, you know, these little worlds unto our own, it's no wonder we're so isolated and so lonely. It's also no wonder that we clash all the time, that we bump into each other all the time, because my choices in my, my autonomous world is not the same as your autonomous world, right? And when you think about it, it's not even logical. But that's basically the mentality that we are fed 24-7 all of the time. From the time that we're in school to the time that we watch TV, which I guess may be the same thing, right? I mean, that, that's the reality of, uh, of what uh, happens here. And what's interesting to me is if you look through the New Testament, you see it going after this over and over again. Why? Because it is so confining. It is so debilitating, and it's so evil and sinful, really. You know, if I, myself is the center of the universe, that constantly puts you down. And Jesus is going after this big time, and the whole New Testament does. In fact, Jesus' brother, James, in his open letter to the church in the New Testament, he talks about this in chapter 4. He explains how the autonomous self causes the outrage that we see all around us today. Or maybe you see in your life or in your home or, or, or in the place you work or wherever. He explains how the quarrels happen. Look what he says. He says, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You, you desire, but you do not have. So you kill and you covet. You cannot get at what you want, so you quarrel and fight. Why do we fight? Because I'm not getting what I want. And wouldn't that be something that the light went on in, about that, like in, in Congress? What, what if somebody stood up in Congress? In fact, you might want to do this in your own family, because if we're honest, this happens in our own homes. Next time you feel like fighting, next time that rage or that frustration starts to rise, just stand up like this and go, I'm not getting what I want. I mean, you might as well start there. Because that's the reality of why you're going after this person. I would love to see Republicans and Democrats just stand up and do that. But anyway, that's, but you know, not just on them, it's us, right? That's the human nature. And see, when the world, when it, the autonomous self tells us over and over again the lie that the world restores around us, and guess who the lie is coming from? It isn't Jesus, it's the enemy. And once we're set free from that, we are on a pathway to go to the land that does not have borders for our trust and confidence from God, in God. Because here's the reality. You ever heard that phrase, it's not about you? Maybe you think it's a put-down. It's not a put-down. It's a relief. Because if the whole universe, the whole world is about you, that is a horrible, hellish place to live. It's a relief. It's the beginning of freedom to that land that has no borders. It's the beginning of lifting you up. It's not a slam to smack you down. It's not a slam to, smack, to, to, to slap us down, to say it's not about me, it's about him. You see, in, in, in Jesus' way of teaching here, what he's talking about, he's trying to touch the deep uh, energy. He's trying to touch the deep heart of our lives. He's trying to touch the part that's been duped by the enemy to think that if, you know, it's going to be, it's, it's up to me. And he's saying, no, no, no. It's about the friendship, the, 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 the friendship that I can apply that will transform your life and will change everything. 
In fact, he says this virtually this way when he talks about fruit that will last. See that sort of the hyphenated area there in verse 16? He says, fruit that will last. Now, I know some of us, we look at this and we go, ah, you know, I've been in church after church. I've heard sermon after sermon. I've heard that before. What else you got? Right? But we ought not to fly over this too quickly. Because you know what the word last means? You know what the original language, Greek word is for last? It's the same word as remain. It's the same word as stay. Only in this time, it's in what's called the durative present, which means it stays again and again and again and again and again. In other words, it's not just fruit that happens in your life and it's this blob and this trophy you keep in your case. God did that for me once. No, it's something that happens again and again and again, just like fruit that comes onto trees every spring and every summer and again and again and again, right? That's what he's talking about. That kind of life, that kind of fruit. And when you think about that, something that lasts, that doesn't just go poof, I start to think about our fickle culture. You ever get tired of fickle culture? You know, you read the magazines, and in Hollywood, they're together. No, they're not. Or, you know, he was before it, before he was against it. Or, uh, you know, take an aspirin every day. No, don't do that. Stay away from eggs. No, really, they're good cholesterol, right? I mean, it's whatever the thing is of the day. And Jesus, you know, I think would say in these words, if he was here today saying these words, I think he would say, you know, I know it's really hip and cool to go with whatever the latest trend is, but it's going to change next week. The flipping and the flopping, it gets so tiring, doesn't it? And Jesus says, but I want to take you on a steady path upward and out of here. Upward and onward. Upward and beyond what it is that's here today and fickle tomorrow. Because God's got a plan. He's got a purpose. And he's working it, he's working it, he's working it, he's working it. You see, the point he's making is God is up to something good in lost world. Even in lost world. Especially in lost world. Because it's in that persevering faith that you go, oh my words. None of us ask for the persevering faith. But the reality is, is when you live in a world that's lost, you will have times when you need to persevere. Why not use it for good stuff instead of lousy stuff? And in the meantime, until that happens, you have Jesus as a friend to help you apply it that way. Help you live above it. Help you get above the, the waves. And to be able to get up over the walls and see beyond the walls. You know, I, I, again, in, in my devotions this week, I've been talking about that a lot, but this is so helpful. I ran across a psalm of David that David wrote just before he died. Remember King David? Uh, he, uh, there's nobody in the Bible that had more adversity, I mean life and death adversity and challenges than this guy. There's nobody in the Bible, uh, well, there's some people in the Bible, but he committed some of the worst sins of anybody in the Bible. And yet God picked him up to the point that David's the only person in the Bible who was given the nickname, a man after God's own heart. How about that? Imagine the wisdom and the, the how to do life that must have been in that mind and heart at the end of his life. As he writes this psalm, it's in the Psalms too, but I read it in, in 2 Samuel verse 20, or chapter 22. And here's a verse that I had come across before, but I'd forgotten about it. And it fit right in as I was meditating about what Jesus says in John 15. And, and this begins to make sense where Jesus is headed. David prays to God. He says, for by you I can run against a troop, and by my God I can leap over a wall. 
Think of that. That's what this is talking about. And, and I know Jesus looks at us. I'm sure he knows too. I mean, in our heart of hearts, we go, uh, you know, can't we talk about miracles? Can't we talk about victory? Can't we talk about prayer? Can't we talk about what's wrong with that other guy? No, not right now. Because I've got something so wonderful and amazing I want to do for you and in you that that's why we need to talk about my transforming friendship and my love for you in your life. You see, have you ever met somebody like this? Maybe they're a fairly new believer, um, but they don't use Sunday school language, you know, because they never went to Sunday school. They don't know uh, about... uh, you know, some of the stuff you've been through because you've been through church for years and so forth. But they come, and there's something that God's done in their life and transformed them to the point that you look at that and you go, man, that's compelling. Man, that's, that's something deep about them. There's something profound because what has happened for them is that, at, you know, they, they weren't living with God, and at some point God invited them, called them, caused them to go down into the valley of lost world. And not only that, he handed them a tent, I said, here, pitch this because you're going to be here a while. And then at some point, he brings them back out. And they have this relationship, this faith, this trust. And what impresses you the most about them is not their obedience, although that's impressive. It's not even their Bible knowledge, although, you know, because they don't look like a person who has Bible knowledge. But that's impressive because they don't seem like they should have it. But what impresses you is their confidence and trust in Jesus, in God. Like, whoa. And you look at that and you go, what is that? Well, what you are in the presence of right there is you're in the presence of a work of God, a maturing believer believer who God is working in. You're looking at the results of the transforming friendship. And now that they've come into your presence, you're a part of the fruit of their life that God is doing in them. And he wants to do that same kind of fruit in your life without maybe taking you down to the valley of lost world. If you just would begin to prepare now for whatever happens in the future and onward. And you, you meet a person like that and you go, boy, I don't want to become like them the way uh, like them, but I sure would like to be like them, right? And God says, Jesus says, that's, that's possible. That's possible if you enter the transforming friendship. And the way you do that is you begin with three words, remain in me, remain in Jesus. And then his words, you keep them coming into, you remain in his word, let them remain in you. And then you you begin believing that he's at work in you. You start to see it. God's at work for good, even in lost world. And finally, what happens for you is you grow into a person beyond what you ever dreamed possible before. And you start praying prayers that you didn't dare pray before. Because when you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you want. And it'll be done for you. Wow, that's a big promise, isn't it? I can imagine a lot. But apparently not as much as God can do. Not as much as Jesus can do. So what I'm telling you to do is remain in Jesus. Talk to him this week. Get some more of his words in you. And then go out there and run into a challenge and jump over some walls. That's what 
we're meant to be together and to help each other in it. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for this bit of teaching from Jesus. Jesus, thank you for coming to share it with us where it's possible to have this friendship with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit that is such so powerful that it transcends and transforms everything, leading us into that place that we suddenly look around and we go, wait a minute, I can see over that wall. I trust him beyond any borders or boundaries. And you begin to realize, you know, that, yeah, sure, there's waves around here, but they're not, they're not drowning me because we've got that faith that lifts us above that wave. Lord, may that be true for us. May you grow that in us. May you give us the grace to see it and draw us deeper into yourself. We thank you for the revelation that the change in this world doesn't start out there with the big bad stuff. It starts in here with us. Help us do that with each other. Help us love one another in that way. And may it become so contagious and may it spread throughout this city that as your church does that together, the people start saying, there must be something real because that's just not normal. Only God could do something like that. Maybe there really is one. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for showing us that way. Thank you for being here today. We love you and we love that you are in our lives and that you remain in us and that you've given us your words so that we can remain in you. It's in your name we pray. We love you. Amen.